Well, uh, it's a joy to have you here. And this weekend, I want to speak to you uh, on this message called The Samaritan Women at the Well. And this is found in John chapter 4. And it's probably one of the most familiar uh, um, accounts in the Word of God for us, right? Jesus encountering this woman, Samaritan woman at the well, and through a series of exchanges leads her to salvation. I want to look at some of these very familiar um, uh, accounts in the Word of God because, you know, I'm reading my, my Gospels all over again, but I'm reading it now with a uh, backdrop and a context of what it was like in the days of Jesus. I discovered that for the longest time, for decades, I've read the New Testament, I've read the Gospels with uh, 21st century eyes, okay? Understanding it from my own background of how things are in this world. But it really, it's important for us to go back 2,000 years ago, understand the context of what Jesus said in His days. And I think that that gives us a fresh understanding of what the Lord seeks to communicate to us. I think also that in the process of learning and looking at the Gospels in this fresh way, I've discovered the events that's recorded of 2,000 years ago have an uncanny applicability for our present day. Sometimes I feel like Jesus made all these things happen. He had these events that happened, especially for our days today, right? And it's just amazing to go back and to rediscover these truths that God has for us. So when you look at this account of the Lord's encounter with the Samaritan woman, yep, it's definitely a formula for evangelism. But I think that there can be more than that. Of course, as you consider this, it's not wrong to look at this as a way that Jesus is teaching us about how to draw a person who's far away from salvation, closer to the Lord through questions, through invitation, through prophetic word, and through empathy. And this is all found in this account. But I want to add several things by highlighting specific passages or sections in John chapter 4 and perhaps help us see things that we've not seen before. The first thing I want to bring to us is a question of when to go, where to go. Now, John chapter 4 verse 1, verse 3 and verse 4 says this, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, He left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But He needed to go through Samaria. You see, the thing that caused Jesus to uproot and to pack his bags and to leave was because of the comparison that people were making between his ministry and the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, this was a cause for a possible schism that would ultimately be detrimental to the expansion of God's kingdom. And hence, Jesus says, I'm not going to be part of this. I'm going somewhere else. But the accompanying commentary that is in the Word of God tells us that Jesus had to go through Samaria. We're told this, that He needed to go through Samaria. He was compelled. There was a conviction. He had to go through Samaria. So on the one hand, it looks like Jesus was avoiding controversy. I don't want to get involved in this comparison thing. I'm going to walk away from controversy. And yet on the other hand, he walked straight into another controversy by going to Samaria, which is a place and a people that was rejected by the Jewish people. Jews had no connection and no interactions with the Samaritans. Now you have to see this. Jesus had a very successful ministry in Judea. The work was growing, it was expanding. Not only that, the location was ideal. It was Judea, his own people, the center of action for religion and nationalistic fervor in Israel. It was to be located in the center of activities. It was the most strategic, the most significant spiritual location to be at. And guess what? Jesus decided, I'm done with this, I'm going somewhere else. 
And he doesn't go to another strategic location, but he goes to what is considered the backwaters of the action, the place where people don't want to go to, the cemetery for ministry, okay? It's, it's you, know, you, know, I, you know, the last couple of uh, months, I've been, you know, every week I go to Lim Chu Kang twice, you know, because my boy is in Sungai Gedong Camp, you know? And if you ever drive to Lim Chu Kang, you know, there's nothing there. Nobody stays there, okay? It's like saying, okay, next week, church, we will not be meeting here in Katong. We'll not be meeting here in Bugis. Next week, church is moving to Lim Chu Kang. Come on, man. How many of you are excited about going to Lim Chu Kang? What on earth? Why is Jesus doing this? And this is all how John chapter 4 begins. But the amazing thing is that despite this terrible move, by the end of John chapter 4, we see Jesus is again in a place of ministry success. A whole city is in a positive uproar. Scores and scores of people are getting saved. The only problem is that it's not amongst the Jews, it's amongst the Samaritans. It was in the capital city of the Samaritans. You see, the first thing I want to point out is that this little inflection in the narrative contains a deep insight into how the Lord makes His decision and it has to impact the way in which we make our decisions. Notice this, that present success was definitely not the primary influence upon His decisions for the future. And that's something insightful because many times we think about what is giving us success now and we make those decisions about how to expand the success that we have instead of jeopardizing the success we already have. But then Jesus doesn't do that. There is a great push factor for him because, and that's the brewing chatter amongst the people. And you are talking about who's the biggest rising star in Christendom, who has the most YouTube views, the comparison, the competition, the detraction towards a measure of ministry success that is not of God. And the Lord will not have part to do with that. And that's how He decides. That's what pushes Him towards moving. Now, on the other hand, there's a great pull factor towards Samaria because the Bible tells us that He had a deep conviction that He needed to go to Samaria. Where did this conviction come from? Was it God the Father who spoke in an audible voice to His Son and says, go to Samaria? Was it because Jesus saw a Samaritan walking by and he saw the burden and the need and how nobody's reaching these groups of people and he felt moved to and compelled by compassion to go to them? Or was it a vision of the night where he saw a Samaritan woman standing by a well saying, Jesus, come to us, we need you. I mean, we are not told any of these things because any of these reasons would have been a compelling pull factor. Biblical texts attest to this by setting a precedence God has called His men and women through any of these methods. And if God comes in any of these methods, it should move us as well. But what we mustn't do is we mustn't ever limit how God speaks to us. Just because He spoke to us in an audible voice in the past doesn't, doesn't mean that He always has to speak to us with an audible voice. We must be open to listen because God can tr- speak to us through a myriad of different ways. I believe the omission here is intentional. The fact that the Bible doesn't tell us how Jesus felt, how Jesus came to the conclusion that he needed to go to Samaria. It is intentional that Bible doesn't tell us why. The only indicator was his deep conviction. You see, when we make our decisions, there must be a deep conviction that this is what Jesus wants us to do, right? Because there there are going to be a lot of things that are going to push and there's going to pull a bad boss, a bad circumstance, a detrimental situation, an attractive situation. But at the end of it, we need to have a deep-seated conviction that I need to go to this place. Jesus needed to go through Samaria. That, that is the underlying text. Amen. 
Now, the next thing I want to point out to us comes from the uh, two verses, okay? John chapter 4, verse 6 and verse 7. I want to read this to you. It says, Now Jacob's well was there, Jesus therefore being weary from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is 11.15 a.m. Um, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, note this, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. The next thing I want to point out is that when is it worthwhile to court controversy? You've got to see this. John chapter 4 is full, is totally controversial, right? Jesus did many things that would draw the eye of convention and of common perception. He did things, let me tell you this, he did things, you know, he broke such tradition, he broke such norms that there is no proper pastor today that should ever do that, Right? No doubt it brought him criticism, skepticism as well from those who are far away from him as well as those who are near to him. His disciples doubted him as well. And the question is, why does Jesus do this? Why is it that Jesus is always drawing controversy? Why is he walking always into one controversy to another? Is it because that's how Christianity is meant to be? God wants us to be riled and, you know, embroiled in controversy all the time? Now, I want to suggest some reasons as to why Jesus, in this case, intentionally walked into controversy. And the first is because he wanted to break barriers that are not of God. Now, notice this, okay? It was a social taboo. It was not permitted to speak to a woman in an isolated situation where there is no witnesses. It's not permitted for a rabbi to do that, right? This is scandalous. The fact that this woman came alone to the well close to noontime indicated she was a person of ill reputation because women never traveled alone. They always traveled in groups. And they come to the well early in the morning because they have to provide water for the household needs for the rest of the day. That she came alone and she came at noontime spoke of the fact that she was avoiding people and there was some ill reputation with regards to her. Now, in the days of Jesus, convention demanded that a man, when he saw this woman coming at this time, would stand off from the well, walk 20 feet at least away from this woman, and that he would not even make eye contact with this woman to do anything lesser was scandal. And yet Jesus didn't do any of that. Right, I mean, there were these barriers that stood between Jesus and this woman, the barrier of gender, she's a woman, he's a man, the barrier of race, is Jew and a rabbi, and that, and she's a Samaritan and morality. I mean, he had a reputation to maintain, and yet we are told that Jesus did nothing of that. He didn't stand up at all. Do you know what this means? That when a woman of ill reputation walked towards a man, and a man sits there, looks at her, it was almost an invitation of trouble and saying to the woman, what do you have to offer to me? There was almost like an indecent proposal that can be read into this, but of course, that was not the intention of the Lord. Jesus stayed, he looked this woman straight in her eyes and oh no, he engaged in a conversation with her. How could that be? Now, I'm not saying that as Christians, we should behave inappropriately according to social norms. There are boundaries that are set and those boundaries are meant to keep us safe. But Jesus did this intentionally because he was establishing a truth for us that will endure to this day. Think for a moment in the days of Jesus. I mean, that people didn't involve women in terms of ministry, right? In the rabbinical traditions, women were not involved. But Jesus not only spoke to women, he invited them into his band of disciples. Jesus literally had women disciples. He was financed by women, and some of them traveled with his band of disciples. Jesus was initiating a shift in a culture 
that had relegated women as second class, a culture that nullified their importance, a culture that gave, that, um, you know, that neutralized their ability to serve the Lord equally as men. Now, if you live in Jesus' day and you came to church, let me tell you this, men, you'll be sitting up here in front, you'll have first rights. Women, you can only sit at the back, you know? That's how it was in the days of Jesus. And so the Lord did all these to break these things. He, went, he acknowledged women, He gave them a voice, empowered them, and deliberately elevated their place in society. Now, this is a consideration for us. When the Lord appointed the first evangelist in the New Testament, guess what? It was this woman. She's a woman. Not only that, she's not Jewish, she's a Samaritan. God, God appointed a complete outsider as the very first evangelist appointed in the New Testament. I mean, Jesus crossed the barrier of gender, Jesus crossed the barrier of race, and Jesus crossed that barrier of the, the clean and the unclean, the sinners, because the gospel is meant for all. Amen. The second thing in which Jesus did to, you know, when he courted controversy was to bring, was to bridge division and to bring reconciliation. Now, John chapter 4, verse 9 says this, for the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Now, I never quite understood the schism between the Jews and the Samaritans until I began to study the history of these two people. Because in 21st century eyes, I read the Bible, I, I see this, you know, thing between the Jews. And I just think, I, uh, Singapore, Malaysian, uh, you know, we fight over who invented chicken rice, you know. But it's nothing like that. It's nothing like that at all. You see, the Samaritans were considered to have descended from the northern tribes. When King David died and Jeroboam took the northern tribes, and then they went into captivity and then they were transplanted back. So they were Jews or they, who couldn't really trace their, their, their roots to, to, to the tribes and went intermingled with the Gentiles and then who is now transplanted back into Israel during the time of, um, you know, the, 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 cap, the Babylonian captivity. Now, Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, tells us this, that there was a man called Eliashib, and he was the great-grandson of the high priest. And the problem with this Eliashib was that he married the daughter of son Balak, which is in Nehemiah chapter 13, 28, 29. Now, we know this from biblical history, that Nehemiah came back, you know, uh, in the days of Cyrus, and then he was going to rebuild the temple. Right? And San Balad was one of those men who were residing there, you know, in a Samaritan, and who opposed the rebuilding of the temple. Right? And during this time, they discovered this intermarrying amongst the nobles, amongst the priesthood, and Eliashib was considered. And so Nehemiah had banished Eliashib and driven him out from Jerusalem. And San Balad was the governor of Samaria. Now, Josephus tells us that while Nehemiah was rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, Sanballat then decided to build the temple of the Samaritans in Mount Gerizim, and he appointed Eliashib of the line of the high priest to become the priest in the temple of uh, Gerizim. And so there are these two temples in those days, one in Jerusalem and one in Gerizim. And it is here that the division between the Samaritans and the Jews became more and more stark. Not only that, during the Maccabean revolt, you know, uh, the Samaritans, they allied themselves with the Seleucids and they came against and fought against the Jewish people. And in retaliation in, 100, in 108 BC, the Jews went to Mount Gerizim, they destroyed the temple of the Samaritans and they killed the Samaritans and ravaged the territories of the Samaritans. In, in, you know, in, in retribution of that, in the time of Jesus when he was born, uh, a band of Samaritans went to the temple in Jerusalem and profaned the temple by scattering the bones of the dead in the sanctuary. You think about these, these violations are heinous. They're intense. 
I mean, I mean, you don't have to think far, think about, you know, uh, politics that we know, geopolitics today, and you can discover these kind of division. Imagine the hatred between the Serbs and the Muslims in Bosnia, or that of the Catholics and the Protestants in North Ireland, where there's bombings and there's killings. Now, all of a sudden, you get a sense of the intense hatred that the Jews had against the Samaritans and vice versa. This is not some cross-border rivalry between Singaporeans and Malaysians. It's nothing like that. It is intense hatred. Can you imagine when Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan? You know, I mean, when the, you got to realize this, when the people were listening to that parable, there were Jewish people, there was a Jewish crowd, and many of them spit on the floor. What kind of a parable is this? They would have said, what Good Samaritan? There's no Good Samaritan except a dead Samaritan. That's what they would have said. This is the kind of intense hatred that was there. And that's what, the Jew, that's what the Samaritan woman expressed in John chapter 4, verse 12. She said, are you greater than our father, Jacob? Hey, this is a fight. Whose father is Jacob? Whose father is Jacob? The Jews or the Samaritans? The Samaritans said, no, my father, our father. He's our father, not yours. Right? In John chapter 4, verse 20, the woman says, our fathers worship in this mountain garrison, and you Jews say that this is Jerusalem is the place we ought, one ought to worship. And the Samaritan woman said all these things on the backdrop of violence, entrenched prejudice, and a deep sense of us versus them. Can there be any grounds for compromise? Can the rift ever be healed? Can there be peace in the Middle East? You see, the approach of Jesus was masterly. Let's look at how he approached this. He made no claims. He didn't claim that the Jews were right and the Samaritans were wrong or vice versa. He did not seek to mediate or to sort repentance. You know, he did no feet-washing prophetic act. He didn't publish a video of the history of the Palestine. All he did was to give insight to the spiritual realities and the internal truth that this woman needed. He showed her and spoke to her and said, I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am the I am. That's what he said. And the Father is seeking for true worshippers, not places of worship. God has come to save people, not geography, not, not geography. You understand? And that's what Jesus did. He came to the very crux of it, penetrated the walls that this woman had built through all the history of her people and who she is in her own personal life to give her precious truth, to cause her to understand and sense the love of God. And that became the turning point. You see, there's something here that we need to grasp. We've all read the Bible. We're all Christians for years. And we follow Jesus and yet somehow we've missed the point of how Jesus went about doing things because we have not understood the context in which these things have been written to us in the Word of God. Amen? The next thing that we need to understand that we can see from here is that mission starts not with giving but receiving. You see, this whole encounter started from a genuine posture of need, from a place of weakness. And let me tell you, I'm not talking about the woman, I'm talking about Jesus. Jesus was in a place of need and weakness. The journey was long, it was a hot midday, and the Lord was really tired and He was really thirsty. You see, when you traverse through the wilderness, you always carried a bucket with you in order to draw water from the well. This is not a metal bucket, but it's a leather bag. And every travelling group would have a leather bag, but somehow maybe the disciples, probably the disciples took it. And Jesus is left at the well and He is thirsty. You know, Jesus was not pretending to be thirsty so that he can initiate a conversation with the woman, okay? It was not. He was genuinely thirsty. And so when the woman come, Jesus needed something from her. And he approached her in his own weakness and need and said, give me a drink of water. Give me a drink of water. 
You see, I want to draw for us a simple difference. Jesus, when He came on the earth, always emphasised this. He came, I came to serve, not to be served. He called Himself a servant. And there's a great difference between what is a servant and what is a benefactor. You see, if you're a true servant, a true servant is a servant who is at the mercy of those whom he is serving. A benefactor serves from a place of power and it's not really, really serving. Have you ever said this? Wow, I serve you all, you're still not satisfied. Have you ever served your children? Oh, I do this for you, I do it for you. Not happy, you go, I don't do it for you anymore. Now, when you can say that, then you are not a servant. But when you have no choice, when you're at the mercy of the ones that you serve, then only are you really 100% a servant. And that's what Jesus says. Jesus says, I'm a servant, I'm not a benefactor. Now, let me help us understand this because when the church begins to work in the community, we will begin to gain certain status, power, and certain influence. We start schools, we start social enterprises, community service centres, fostering communities, we go into the prisons, begin to do social work. And these institutions don't just help, they impact our societies in many different ways. We literally impact our economy when we employ people. We bring businesses to those who are around us. We reinstate people into a place of functionality. We provide social net, manpower, stir up altruism and the like. And in due course, the society we are in begins to need us, right? They begin, uh, you know, and, and when, when they need us, it gives us certain power, it gives us certain bargaining chips. And ultimately, the society will begin to look at us and say, wow, these Christians, they're everywhere. They're doing this, they're doing that. And there's a sus suspicion that rises. There's a fear. Do they have an ulterior motive in this? And worse still, when the Christians begin to adopt an attitude whereby, well, you need me. You better listen to me because you need me. And we fail to understand that this is not the methodology that Jesus adopted. We fail to understand the Bible tells us that it is in our weakness that we become strong. And when we understand how much we need the people that we are serving, only then, when we are convicted that we need the people that we are serving, only then can we truly build bridges like the way Jesus did in his days. Now, isn't it funny? Isn't it telling? Isn't it significant that when, G when God chose a form for our Lord Jesus to be born, he chose a helpless babe. The Word of God, the eternal Word, now is reduced to a state where he couldn't even utter one word. If Joseph and Mary chose not to have him, not to look after him, he was helpless. There was nobody to look after him. He was as helpless as a baby could be. And think about this. When Jesus sent out his first missionary teams, he sent out the 12, the instruction that he gave to them was unusual. He says, don't carry a staff, don't bring bread with you, don't bring money, no credit cards, no handphones, nothing. He literally sent them helpless into the villages to which they're supposed to preach. Can you imagine as you go into this place, these guys going there, the first thing they think about is not preaching. The first thing is, where am I going to stay tonight? I walk all this distance here. I need food. I need drink. So they go to the villages and says, please, can someone give me food? Jesus sent them helpless so that first of all, when they enter every village minister, that they will be ministering to, that they went in in a place of need. I need your mercy and I need your help. And that's when they will go in truly as servants, as not as superiors. They'll never go in with an attitude that, hey, I'm here to teach you guys how to do things, man. I'm just here to show you how this is to be done. But they will go in with the attitude of servants. What is the application for us? By the way, for all of you who are signing up for Korea's trip at the end of this year, this is our new rule for Korea's short-term missions trip. 
You'll be going out and at the airport, we'll be collecting all your handphones, all your wallets, all your credit card, all your money. We'll not be booking hotels for you. Just one air ticket, you fly. When you reach there, you go on the streets. Can you please, can I please stay at your house? Can I please? This is how we're going to do missions from now on. You're going to be dependent on the people that you serve and then you'll truly be a servant. Can you imagine if we really did that with our mission trips? Can you imagine if we transform that? What does this mean for us individually in the places to which God has called us to serve? Because this is the formula that God has given to us. Jesus came in a place of weakness, dependent on the very ones that He had created in order to serve us and become our Savior. This is the formula. I'm telling you this, we've read the Bible so many times and we still don't get it. Because we've not gone deep enough in the Word of God. We have our methodologies are still the methodologies of this world. You see, the current model of missions constantly affirms the strength of the giver and the weakness of the receiver. And this can never be empowering. This builds a cycle of dependence as the receiver is reinforced in receiving themselves, seeing themselves as being lesser than the ones who come. Does our mission teams, does our mission works reinforce that? to make them seem weaker than us? The people that we serve in the community, do we make them feel weaker than us? That we are superior to them? That's the fallacy, that's the fault that we have in the church today. You know, I want to bring the... I actually have got four points, but I'm out of time, okay? So I'm just going to stick to three. But this weekend is communion weekend. And I want you all to consider what communion is. You know, we encourage you to have communion individually on your own at home. But let me say this, that communion above all is meant to be partaken as a congregation. When it was instituted, it was with the disciples. And so whenever we come together, we need to reflect on what communion is. And communion, if I could say this, the night in which the Lord was betrayed, the setting was one of weakness. The setting is one of apparent defeat. The cross and everything associated with it seems like we've lost the game. It seems like Jesus has lost the fight. The disciples are scattered. The Lord is crucified. And yet it is in weakness that His strength is made perfect. Amen? And there is something about what we are about to partake that brings a sense of our own weakness, but that brings the strength of the Lord to us. Amen? And as we come to the Lord's table, I want to ask us to contemplate about this. Are you in a place where you have an important decision to make? And I hope that we can rethink our decisions. Are you fully convicted about what you're supposed to do? Are you fully convinced? Because Jesus knew He needed to go through Samaria. Right? Do you know that? You know, are there barriers that God is calling you to tear down and to bring down so that you can establish something new that can bridge to a new people, that can bring reconciliation, that can bring peace where there is not peace. Is God asking us to become radical and to become controversial in reaching out in love to people that are otherwise not going to be reached in the conventional ways? And finally, have you really adopted the attitude of a servant? Are we servants? Or are we actually benefactors disguised as servants? who don't really understand the weakness that God has called us to embrace. Amen? And I want to ask us to contemplate these things as we come to the Lord's table because Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. He's a servant, servant king. He's our saviour, suffering messiah. 
And I want to invite us as we look to the Lord in prayer, as we commend these elements to the Lord, to welcome the Holy Spirit into our hearts to speak to us. Father, we just come to you, Lord. We thank you for this bread, this cup. We thank you, Lord, for these elements and what they represent, everything that Jesus went through, Lord, that He gave to us, Lord, encapsulated in these simple elements, O oh God, these sacraments, O oh God, to help us contemplate and understand and comprehend. Lord, there is something about partaking of these elements that it becomes infused in us, Lord. Father, we, if we have been Christians, Lord, where we have learned all these things and yet nothing has become part of us, Lord, if we have looked at Your Word from a distance and not appreciated it and incorporated it into our lives, Lord, Father, we ask You, Lord, today, forgive us, Lord. As we come to Your table, we pray, O oh God, that this bread, this, this cup, Lord, will become flesh and blood to us, Lord. It will become a part of us. We will truly partake of Christ and all that He's done for us, Lord. And we will not stand afar off, Lord. Father, if there is any hardness in our hearts today, we, we confess it. We just ask You to come and soften it, Lord. Father, it doesn't matter what people have done to us, Lord. It matters what You have done for us. What you've done for us is greater than what people can ever do to us. And I just ask you, Holy Spirit, to come right now in this place, in our homes where we are watching. Speak to us, touch our hearts. If there's a decision that needs to be made, show us. If you're calling us, Lord, to pioneer and to break into new places, speak to us, let us know. Let us be so convicted. Father, if there are shifts that needs to happen, Lord, as we partake of your table, Lord, let those shifts begin to happen in us, Lord. We receive your grace and your goodness, Lord. We pray and ask this all in Jesus' name. You've just listened to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.